Chapter 15 of Israel's Faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by April 6090, California, United States of America. Israel's Faith by Nathan Solomon Joseph. Sanitary Laws. The laws relating to health are too numerous to mention in detail, and it will be sufficient to treat of them in broad outlines. The main principles of the laws of purification, as laid down in Leviticus and Numbers, appear to be that as infectious diseases are mostly communicated by contact. All cases of infection are to be isolated. That all contact with any center of infection is to be avoided that when such contact has been unavoidable, there must be, first, segregation, to prevent the spread of infection, and finally, purification, before the infected person is readmitted into society. Every corpse was considered a possible center of infection, hence those who touched a corpse, or who were under the same roof with a corpse, or who touched a grave, had to purify themselves on the third day, and it was not till the seventh day that they were declared clean, after having again purified themselves, washed their clothes, and bathed themselves in water. In quite recent times, medical men have come to the conclusion that infectious diseases can be stamped out only by the most careful system of isolation. Nevertheless, it will be seen the sanitary laws of the Penitech clearly enforce the principle and point to isolation as the first duty incumbent on a patient suffering from communicable disease, or on a person bearing the germs, or even the possible germs, of infection. And it is declared that he who purifieth not himself defileth the tabernacle of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from Israel. The great scourge of the East was, and in many places still is, leprosy, and in the thirteenth chapter of Leviticus will be found the most exact and stringent rules for the prevention of the spread of this malady by contagion or infection. Infected clothing was burned. An infected house had to be first emptied, the infected parts of the building removed, and the walls scraped. Then, if the infection proved chronic, the whole house had to be razed to the ground, and the materials removed to an unclean place never to be used again. The priest acted as physician. It was he who had to declare the patient, the garment, or the house clean or unclean, before the readmission of the leper into society. Certain sacrificial rites had to be performed, but, above all, certain abulations had to be made by the patient, and his hair had to be shaved off. In these times, when cleanliness is known to be an essential condition of health, it will not be a subject of surprise to find the washing of the clothes and the bathing of the flesh with water ordained as material acts of purification. If these simple remedies alone had been prescribed for the prevention of infection, they would doubtless have been disregarded and neglected, for there is a tendency of the uneducated mind to respect a remedy of a complex and to disregard one of a simple kind, just as we find the Naman doubted the efficacy of the seven simple ablutions in the Jordan, prescribed by Elisha as a cure for his leprosy, because the cure was not accompanied by any incantation or ceremonial. 
but probably this was not the only reason why the ablutions were accompanied by priestly rites it must be remembered that many diseases take their origin in intemperance excess and other infractions of the moral law so it was a salutary act to bring the influences of religion to bear upon the patient not only with the object of impressing upon him the need of an amended life but of reminding him that though god delegates his healing powers to man the great physician is god himself to whom we owe life and health and every blessing the law for the disposal of refuse by burial in the earth is truly a remarkable one the modern system which permits such matter to pollute our rivers is now acknowledged to be a gigantic blunder and the best authorities are now of opinion that though storm waters should be led into the rivers sewage should be led into the earth to enrich the soil and reproduce the food whence it takes its origin we have already referred to the law which declared unclean all who touched a corpse or a grave or who happened to be under the same roof with a corpse which required their purification before they could be readmitted into society but the law was much more stringent as regards the priests these were not permitted to come near a corpse under any condition except on the death of a near relative namely a parent wife child brother or unmarried sister and even in these exceptional circumstances they had to be purified and to remain apart for seven days the sanitary importance of this rule must be clear seeing that in the east the diseases most prevalent are contagious that a corpse which in warm climates decomposes rapidly is a highly probable source of infection and that the priests being also the physicians if allowed to touch the dead might communicate mortal disease from the dead to the living our people have always regarded their dead with the greatest veneration the careful watching of the corpse from the moment of death till the funeral hour the reverent ablution of the dead the following of the remains to the grave with all marks of respect regardless of the rank or station of the deceased and the rule which assigns to each corpse even to that of a pauper a separate grave as an everlasting possession all these customs indicating an affectionate tenderness for the dead seem strangely at variance with those mosaic laws which treat the human corpse as a thing defiling him that touches it what then can be the object of these laws apart from their sanitary purpose a glance at the history of certain ancient nations and even at the customs of some religions of our own day will furnish us with a reply in ancient egypt the country where the israelites had so long dwelt the treatment of the dead was the great absorbing thought of the living to build a grand tomb for himself was the first thought of every egyptian the greatest pains were taken to preserve the bodies of the dead the more perishable parts were removed and the body embalmed wrapped tightly in bands of linen to prevent the access of air and the preservation of the body from decay was considered essential to the happiness of the departed soul the chief books in the egyptian literature were those relating to the funeral ritual before the tombs of the egyptians altars were erected and on these altars their relatives offered sacrifices in times of difficulty or danger they would consult the dead and pray for their intervention or for their advice the privilege of burial was not allowed to all some were refused burial and had to be kept forever by their families standing upright in closed coffins against a wall inside their houses 
a lasting disgrace to their relatives. Poor people who died in debt were refused burial, and at one time a creditor could make his debtor give as security the mummy of his father. The city of the dead was under the control of the priests of Egypt, who had high privileges, and possessed one-third of the land. Their influence over the people was enormous, chiefly derived from their power either to award honors or to offer indignities to the dead. Thus we see the evil resulting from the gigantic corpse traffic, which became at last the aim and end of religion in Egypt. No wonder that Jacob, fearful that his body might become an object of worship for future generations, exclaimed as a last request to his son, Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. Or that Joseph, with like apprehension, made the children of Israel swear that they would carry his remains from Egypt to Canaan. In our own days there are superstitions as bad, and perhaps more mischievous. In the churches of Catholic countries will be found bones of so-called saints who lived centuries ago, reverently preserved as relics, and kept as objects of idolatry. Many of these are alleged by the priests to be capable of working miraculous cures even now. And as the priests hold aloft these human relics, perhaps a fleshless skull, or perhaps a shrunken human hand, or perhaps only a single bone, with great pomp and ceremony, the assembled multitude bend the knee, and accord to these remains a worship which should belong to the supreme God alone. No wonder, then, that God should bid his people regard human remains and the graves of the dead as unclean. No wonder that he should forbid his priests even to go near a dead body. If the priests might not go near a corpse, how much less might they consult the dead, or offer a spurious worship at their tombs, or present sacrifices at their graves, or work pretended miracles with the fragment of a corpse? One cannot but admire, with rapt wonder, the divine foresight, whereby all graves were declared unholy and unclean, and whereby, when our great legislator Moses died, his burial was so arranged that no man knoweth of his sepulchre unto this day. Not upon the body, but on the spirit of the departed, are we to bestow our thoughts, on their example and their influence, on their worth and on their work. Let us think of them as spirits, rejoicing in the presence of their Maker working his will in the better world, as they worked his will in this. The laws relating to food may be all classed under the head of sanitary laws, for they have been ordained in the interests of health, moral, and physical. When God blessed Noah and his sons after the flood, he delivered into their hand the whole animal world, and told them, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. In those early days there were no dietary restrictions but these two. A living animal might not be mutilated to afford food, and the blood of an animal might not be eaten. These laws were repeated by Moses, but with far greater detail and circumstance. We read in Leviticus, Moreover, ye shall eat no manner of blood, whether it be of fowl or of beast, in any of your dwellings. Whatsoever soul it be that eateth any manner of blood, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. With even greater stringency is the law repeated later. Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, 
I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. In Deuteronomy the same injunction is repeated, Only ye shall not eat the blood, ye shall pour it upon the earth as water. And further in the same chapter we are told, Only be sure that thou eat not the blood, for the blood is the life, and thou mayest not eat the life with the flesh. Thou shalt not eat it, thou shalt pour it on the earth as water. Thou shalt not eat it, that it may go well with thee, and with thy children after thee. What can be the object of this prohibition, so frequently repeated? The Bible gives us one reason, that the blood is used upon the altar as an atonement sacrifice, but this cannot be the chief reason. The real reason must remain a mystery, until the great problem of life is solved. We know nothing of the processes of vital action, but we know that the blood is the vehicle of life to the animal frame, the circulating medium, maintaining vitality in every organ of the body, and feeding the brain, the fountain of thought and action. We know from the influence of certain narcotics that what passes into the blood after digestion affects the brain, sometimes acting on the intellectual, and sometimes on the moral qualities of man sometimes weakening and sometimes stimulating those powers. How the brain is acted upon, we know not, but we know enough to feel sure that what we eat and drink does affect the mental and spiritual part of man. What then is more probable than that if the blood of a brute animal enters our frames? Some of the qualities of that animal may become communicated to us through its blood, and that part of the nature of the animal may thus enter our nature and debase and brutalize us? Experience leads a strong probability to this view, and, if the view be correct, the precepts so strongly prohibiting blood are easily understood. Our traditional mode of slaughtering cattle by cutting the throat was evidently ordained for the purpose of draining from the body of the animal the greatest possible quantity of blood, and the custom adopted in all Jewish households of steeping meat in water for half an hour and keeping it afterward strewn with salt for an hour before cooking it, has, doubtless, for its object, the extraction of any blood still remaining. When we further examine the laws prohibiting the use of certain animals for food, the leading principle of those laws seems to be that all animals, which themselves feed on blood, are pronounced unclean, and are prohibited. No quadruped might be eaten except such as had cloven feet, and also chewed the cud. Such animals, as had only one of these characteristics, such as the camel, the hare, and the swine, were regarded as unclean. Their carcasses might not even be touched, much less they be used for food. The law limiting the eatable animals to the cloven-footed only excluded the whole range of carnivora, or animals that eat flesh. Flesh-eating animals are, of necessity, blood-eating animals, so it is not difficult to see why they are prohibited. No fish might be eaten except such as had fins and scales. Twenty species of birds are also enumerated as unclean, and forbidden as food, 
all worms and creeping things and all insects with the few exceptions enumerated are also prohibited and it is quite possible although not absolutely capable of proof that nearly all those prohibited animals are in some degree carnivorous and consequently blood-eating it would be impossible with our present limited knowledge to assign a special sanitary reason for the prohibition of each of these animals as food we know but little of the habits of most animals and we know absolutely nothing of their inner life but inasmuch as all the prohibited animals are described as unclean there must doubtless be something in their structure and habits rendering them unwholesome as objects of human food the filthy habits of the swine and the shocking diseases to which it is liable and which it engenders in those who feed on it are very well known and in modern times it has been thoroughly recognized by medical men that swine's flesh is unwholesome food even if the animal itself may have been healthy when slain swine will eat any garbage however decomposed and they have even been known to devour their own young the forbidden birds include several which are known to live on carrion of the filthiest kind and to delight in blood the law wisely describes them as abominations not even to be touched when dead much less eaten certain kinds of fat specified by tradition and including the particular fat used for sacrifice were forbidden to be eaten as was also the flesh of any animal that was accidentally wounded or that died of disease this last precept has given rise to the excellent traditional practice among the jewish people that all animals slain for food must be examined by skilled persons with the object of ascertaining whether the animal was free from disease in case of disease being discovered the animal is pronounced unfit for food terefa the law also forbids us to seethe a kid in its mother's milk the word getty translated kid here means the young of, of any mammal the command seems at first a strange one and its meaning has been questioned by many learned men the great mamonides himself a physician of eminence considers the prohibition to be solely a sanitary one as he regards the mixture of flesh and milk too indigestible a food but the more probable reason is that there is something cruel and repugnant to natural sentiment in boiling a young animal in the milk that was destined for its nourishment and there is an analogy between this precept and that which forbade the killing of any animal and its progeny on the same day it is certain that the jews have always abstained from such an unnatural mixture of food apart from sanitary considerations there is the moral influence which such laws exercise by reason of the restraints which they place on our appetites that the jews are distinguished for temperance is universally acknowledged as convivial in their habits as any of their fellow-citizens our people are yet moderate in their enjoyments and drunkenness finds no place among the vices of the jews for this immunity from intemperance and from many of those diseases which affect other races we are indebted to the dietary laws which while they permit us to enjoy in moderation the good things of life place a curb on our appetites so as to foster in us the quality of self-restraint chapter fifteen